So welcome to the first ever Armstrong and Getty podcast. We probably need to jazz your name for this, but it's going to be our long-form conversations with people we like. Yeah, I kind of like it as a, as a, as a standalone uh, name. It's very, uh, very down-to-earth. Well, it's descriptive. It's like, you know, Boston's first album was called Boston. I get it. You know where they're from? Mm-hmm. Atlanta. Cheesecake nope. Factory, no, they, they have cheesecake. You That's know right. what you're getting. That's right. So uh, anyway, this is our our, our, our long-form podcast, and our, our first guest is a good old friend, personally and professionally, Tim Sandifer, Vice President for Litigation at the Goldwater Institute. He also spent 15 years at the Pacific Legal Foundation, an organization which we're big, big fans of. He's the author of Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in 21st Century America, co-authored with his fabulous wife, Christina Sandifer, The Right to Earn a Living, The Conscience of the Constitution, uh, a wonderful new-ish book about Frederick Douglass, called Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man, um, and, uh, and a great writer and thinker. Hey, Tim. Hey, so you have you want to you want somebody who can just keep talking and talking and talking for for a tremendous amount of time, and you invite me. I, yeah. I get it. No, I see what you're talking. Well, about. you got the depth of knowledge, but were you aware? Maybe you were aware this this some people call it the intellectual dark net that exists out there. <laughs> yeah, and it I like that name because it's it's kind of off the grid, but there are millions of people doing it listening to these podcasts and one of the things youtube videos that sort of thing very big yeah but one of the things that seems to be a theme is they're not clearly one thing these conversations it's not like it is at all of regular radio or tv where you tune in and you immediately say is this a liberal show or a conservative show these long-form podcasts you can't really figure out what the guests are which by the way is the way normal people are (laughs) You know. Yeah, that's the thing. I think I I think the term darknet is is ridiculous. I think it's an attempt to try and make it sound like it's some shadowy conspiracy of evil capitalists. But the the reality is that with the availability of all sorts of different kinds of media now, we're seeing the the subdivision of uh of our conversations into a finer and finer degree so that you have more intense audiences that might be smaller, but they're more devoted. And you saw that, for instance, when cable television first came out, the quality of television drama improved because you could have longer form stories with more in-depth characters and complicated plots and things because you weren't going for a larger audience. You were going for a more loyal audience. And so you could explore things more deeply, like with HBO and so forth. So I think that's what you're seeing when it comes to this. That's pretty good. Maybe maybe this is this podcast thing or whatever you want to call it is like um, is like cable cable TV has been to network shows. Well, and but of course, a lot of it's going to be terrible just for the because of the basic rule that ninety nine percent of everything is crap. Right, and so most of most that's of your the basic rule. Are, that's a good basic. Oh rule. yeah, hell yeah, everything starts from there. So you know, it's funny. It strikes me as a guy who's raised raised a passel of kids. The more kids you have to appeal to at mealtime, the more likely you're going to get bland crap. And I think, right, you know, exactly. the, the same is true of virtually any sort of entertainment. Uh, you know, this is probably a super broad question on this topic, but what the hell? Um, where do you think we are in terms of the exchange of ideas, particularly in the United States? Because moronic cable news yelling is at an all-time high. On the it's other worse hand, than ever. Oh, yeah, and it's it's unforgivable. It's criminal in its stupidity and its... It's dishonesty. At the same time, though, you have a phenomenon like the one we've been talking about. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, that's your next book. We have, <laughs> we have at our fingertips. We have these devices in our pockets that we can use to connect to Wikipedia and have the entire world's knowledge at our fingertips and all of the great music and art and literature. And instead, we mostly at our at our best, we're sending each other videos of kittens. So I I think it's that. It's a weird phenomenon where the, uh, the the curve is flattening out so that instead of having a few people who have access to a tremendous amount of information and they're the recognized intellectual leaders of the culture, instead everybody has a slightly more improved knowledge of the world, but it's only slightly, and so it sort of tends towards the middle of the road, which may not be a good thing in some ways, but in other ways it's a great thing. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who would never have had exposure to the world's great art and literature who today can access it. It's just, are they going to take advantage of it? Should we necessarily want them to? I don't really know. 
Well, <laughs> why, whoa, wouldn't, whoa. Why, why wouldn't we want them? Because Western civilization well, you, is oppressive. Haven't you heard that? Do you know about intersectionality? Well, there is that, but I was thinking more like Mike Rowe often says, not everybody needs to go to college. Not everybody, yeah. you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing that somebody doesn't like to sit there and listen to Bach and Handel. I happen to, but a lot of people don't. And it, sh- it doesn't mean that those people are stupid, and it doesn't mean that I am intellectually superior to them. Those are criteria established at a previous age. Nowadays, we have people who have I- intense knowledge of very tiny fractions of the world. It's an era of specialization. That doesn't necessarily mean a, that it's that's not necessarily a bad thing that the age of the Renaissance man is over. The age of the Renaissance man came about because the number of people who were illiterate was tremendous back then. And so if you could read, you necessarily became a specialist in everything. But nowadays, that's not the case. I like Barbara Bach and Bill Handel. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> You know, I've been called a renaissance man, Tim, but it does occur to me that, like, if you were referred to as a renaissance doctor, you'd be run out of town, or a renaissance astronomer, you'd probably be pretty behind the curve. Um, well, the, Joe, those people who were calling you a renaissance man, they were they were referring to the renaissance fair. <laughs> but that, that reminds me... I like me, to walk around with a big turkey leg. It's my thing. It reminds me of the idea that, you know, we, we're always against rocking the vote. We, we don't want more people to vote. Unless they take the time to, like, read up on the issues, then, then please do. But unless you're going to, no, don't vote. I like voter turnout being relatively low since most people aren't paying attention and... It, it, you know, kind of gets to your all this information's out there, but are people going to take advantage of it? And do we want them to? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, we the the vote can be a dangerous weapon, and yet we hand it out indiscriminately. If everybody voted, I mean, if we had something like ninety percent turnout to vote, politi- our our entire political system could be turned upside down today. There's not an issue that you couldn't stand on its head if everybody decided to vote. And thank God they don't. Yeah. Yeah, the qualifications, the requirement that people know what they're talking about before they go into the voting booth seems perfectly reasonable, and yet it's regarded, that is regarded I've as... I've always been pro-poll test. How do you feel about a poll test? Oh, I mean, boy. I know it's, it's history is, is not good, but what about if you had a test and you have to be able to name the president, vice president, and how many Supreme Court justices there are, or something like that? I mean, pretty simple. I, You'd weed out a I giant know. chunk of people. I think that's liable to, it's liable to so much abuse that I wouldn't favor that, because if you could wave your magic wand to wave away the abuse, well, then it would be best just to do that instead of imposing a tax. In fact, the best thing to do is to reduce the authority. Landed of white males, is that where you're going? Oh, God. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You're not going to land at white males? No, if I'm saying get the government so that it's not doing anything, it doesn't matter who gets the vote. You know, lots of feminists like to quote the line from Virginia Woolf, um, where she referred to a room of my own. I want a room of my own. The actual line that she said was, give me a room of my own and you can keep the vote. Because what matters is, leave me alone, give me private property, and don't bother me and take my stuff away to pay people not to work. And then it doesn't really matter who gets elected. That's why you don't see all this, this brouhaha over get, who gets elected dog catcher or something. But there's tons of money being poured into who gets elected president and, and elected to Congress because there's so much redistribution of wealth involved. That's the real problem. Interesting. Which brings us to really kind of the root of your career and your books, um, which we mentioned and we'll get into a little more specifically in a bit. But, you know, in this great age of resurgent populism, uh, there's a lot of populism that's really unhealthy. For instance, and the Founding Fathers knew that, most people want a king, don't they? In a royal family and a wise and benevolent papa to rule from on high? Yeah, I think there is a, a, a something to be said for that. I think most people don't think long enough to uh, to say where does the money come from that the government's going to give to me. They think that right. many people think of the government as their parent, when the reality is that government is your child. The, the, it's the people who support the government. So, as a matter of common sense, the government can't support the people. And I don't want to come off as contemptuous of the average human being. Um, but but there's danger there, and the Founding Fathers understood that because it's a really seductive idea that the government will take care of me. In fact, it's not only is it not con- it's not a condescending thing to say most people don't understand or think about politics. 
it's not a condescending thing. It's fa- it's the focus of a, of a lot of scholarship. It's called rational ignorance. And my, my friend Ilya Soman, who's a law professor at George Mason University, he focuses a lot of his scholarship on rational ignorance. It is not rational for a, a lot of people to spend their time studying politics because they have other things to do. They they spend their time studying, you know, how to make uh, how how to do gardening or how to build buildings or how how to put up a bridge or something. That's what their time is spent on. And it's we would not be rational for me to spend my time studying engineering, because I'm not an engineer, for the same reason that it's not rational for most people to spend their time on politics. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does mean that we need to be very wary when they express political opinions or demand a, a say in what the government does. You're a, uh, an expert on the founding. What do you think? We, we, we regularly ask this as, you know, it's a common question. If the founding fathers were alive today, what would they think of their experiment, do you think? <laughs> Shocked well, that it lasted so, so long or horrified of where it's ended up? There would be a lot of the latter. No, I, I, think, uh, I think Jefferson would be horrified that we hadn't torn up the Constitution long ago and rewritten it several times. Jefferson had this idea that we should rewrite the Constitution every generation or so. And he would be horrified also, by the way, at the size of the states. He thought the states should be much smaller than they currently are and should be subdivided down into the, the to in, hundreds, 100 citizens per town unit or something like that. He came up with these really great ideas to try and limit government power and, and keep power in the hands of, of local decision makers as much as possible. So he would have been horrified and he would have said that we had sold out the American dream to the Hamiltonian notion of get rich quick. And, and by the way, that is really true. There really is, there's two American dreams. There's the American dream of patient, careful, hard work that provides a modest living for yourself and your family. And then there's the American dream of get rich quick. And those two have always been in tension. And it's when the latter starts to, to rise in society that you really need to be careful and, and worried about the government. I think James Madison would have been more pleased than Jefferson. Madison had this idea had a more conservative view about what government could accomplish and and how reasonable it was to expect people to be responsible citizens, and his answer was not very. So I think he would have been a little bit more pleased, but he still would have been pretty shocked by the scope and size and power of government today. Now, none of them, none of them, not even not even people like Hamilton or John Adams, who were more of your big government guys, not even they would have had. They all would have been horrified. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You could find things that they would disagree on, I'm sure, but I would think they would all be shocked at the role government plays in everybody's life in the modern world. Which brings us back to the rational ignorance you're talking about. As I've said many times, it is an impossibility for a voter or, hell, even a legislator to have anything near a thorough enough knowledge of what the government is doing to be a, a responsible voter or responsible representative, which which is just that's a deal breaker. If you have a government too large and complex to comprehend, much less control, then you've done something terribly wrong. Yeah, I think The Atlantic ran an article some months ago about uh, talking about how the presidency was just too big a job for, for people across the board. And that's absolutely true. It, and it's not true just in the era of Trump. It was true of Obama. It was true of Clinton. It was true of Bush. No, no individual could possibly understand even a fraction of what the president is required to do. So, of course, the president can't possibly get it right. No, nobody could possibly handle that kind of information. It's just too much work for any one person to do. Or, or a group of people. Like you say, Congress doesn't read a lot of the bills because nobody could read all those bills. So what happens is that the intellectual leadership kind of devolves into the hands of think tank people like me or into the hands of staff members, especially in a state like California with, the, with term limits and things. You often find that the staffers stay around. They become the permanent political class. And then it's a matter of, of this, you know, these ideas that float around the Capitol for a decade or two until all of a sudden there comes a need. Oh, hey, let's we need to do a bill on such and such. What, what have we got in the drawer? You know, well, they've got in the drawer what's been floating around for 10 years, and that's what gets passed. That's exactly what happened with Obamacare. When, when Obamacare came about, all these notions had been floating around Washington, D.C. for decades or so. And they, were, they all just stuffed it into a bill, and there you go. And so you get this horrible, crazy quilt of a bill that nobody still understands what it does. You know. So let's circle back to something you said. We were talking about Hamilton earlier and the get-rich-quick uh, view of, of America, the American dream. 
Uh, how does that intersect with the desire for big government? I don't get it, he says, feigning ignorance. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of people expect to get rich quick off of the government. Um, or at a minimum that they can use the government to keep other from other people from getting rich quick. Well, and it's uh, a, the government is a great tool for for ruining your competition and, and getting what you, you want. Right. Stifling competition by through licensing laws or other kinds of restrictions. And, you know, we by the way, we often talk about this in economic terms, but it's also true in social terms. The government doesn't just prevent competition in economics, it also prevents competition in ideas. So religious groups will often try and use the government to restrict their opponents in exactly the same way that businesses try to use the government to restrict their, com- their competitors. Licensing laws for, t- for, for starting a moving company are a good example of how existing moving companies use the licensing requirements to prevent economic competition. A lot of the time you see the same kind of competition between religious groups as, as opposed to economic groups. So for instance, every few years, Texas goes through a meeting where they, they adopt textbooks. And because they're the single largest market for textbooks, that matters a lot. So a lot of religious groups will rally around that meeting to try and get the textbooks they like adopted because they know that that will set the trend nationwide. And it's exactly the same phenomenon. And James Madison understood this when he wrote the Constitution. He used that example, he used the competition among religious groups as his explanation for why you need limited government, because that kind of competition will cancel itself out if you have the right checks and balances in place so that no one church can take over the power of government and, and stifle religious freedom of religion and so forth. And the same is true of government, or I mean of, of economics. If, if you have these competing interest groups, as long as the government's power is limited, it doesn't really matter whether they hate each other or whatever, because they're not going to harm the rest of us by creating a monopoly. And so that's why I often say that my goal is the separation of economics and politics in exactly the same way as the separation of church and state. How far away are we from that goal? About a billion light years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, probably worth mentioning is specifically uh, one of my favorite books of yours, The Right to Earn a Living, which is just it's such an eye opener about how government is used and regulation is used not to keep us all safe and make things fair, but precisely the opposite. Yeah, yeah. The, the founding fathers called it the, the problem of faction. A faction is a group within society, which can even include an entire majority of the society that wants to use the government for its own private purposes instead of for the public welfare. And the fact is that there really is only one thing in the world that is genuinely in the public welfare, and that is the protection of individual rights. Everything else you can think of favors one group at the expense of another, whether it be public schools. Public schools favor those who have children against those who don't have children. I don't have kids, but I have to pay to support the public schools. And there's always some excuse given. Oh, well, you benefit from the fact that there's an educated populace. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, right. It's the parents who benefit from the public schools because they don't have to uh, provide for the education entirely by themselves because they're subsidized out of my tax, po- out of, out of my tax dollars. So, Everything else that you can think of is like that. It benefits some people at the expense of others, except for the protection of individual rights. And so the more you get to a government that does nothing more than protect individual rights, the better off society in general is, as opposed to one faction over another using political power for their own best interests. Hey, a tangent, since uh, you brought up the idea of getting rich quick, the recent Supreme Court ruling on uh, gambling So there are a lot of states that are either going to get into the lottery thing now or increase it or opening up more um, gambling to uh, sports betting and that sort of to to uh, to to make money off of it. And only the governments will really be allowed to do it large scale. So so you got taxpayer money being spent to advertise to people to that they're going to get rich quick, I guess, so that they can bring in more money to the state government and then waste it. How do you feel about that? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because, of course, as a libertarian, I believe that if you want to gamble, it's every bit it's your right. The government has no biz- business getting involved. But you know, gambling is a is not exactly a healthy occupation, and it does encourage social mores and habits that are inimical to a, a good society. And it it should be, I don't know, it, it is worrisome that the government is in the business of fostering these kinds of activities. If you think about it, though, it's funny because government has always been doing that. Government has been subsidized by um, taxes on liquor 
forever. And there are states where the government owns all of the liquor stores. It, liquor is, run, is a monopoly run by the government. And government taxes on cigarettes and things. The, you know, these sin taxes have always been a very important part of government's income, precisely because it knows that you know, they're kind of addictive and it's hard not to do them. So they're a, a healthy right. income stream. Right. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I, I agree. When prohibition w- went into place, prohibition was only made possible by the passage of the income tax amendment because the federal government was supported so much by alcohol taxes that the only way that you could prohibit alcohol was to come up with an alternative income stream for the government. And that was why the income tax was such a, a, a an important part of the progressive platform. I was happy to hear you say that, that you're troubled as a libertarian, you know, because I, I'm the same way. I'm libertarian in most things, but on this one, the idea of the government with the, the, the billboards of happy, smiling people winning money, which is a lie. Almost nobody, nobody, you're not going to win. You know, long, long term, your math, you're going to lose. But they're so they're lying to people to try to get them to spend money on something that's a bad habit to try to fill state coffers, which then they will waste the money. Wow. I was going to accuse you, too, of, of dabbling in paternalism. I was really looking forward to that. But now I get it. So would you, either one of you, have a problem with just, uh, you know, me running a sports book? I no. run it on the up and up. I'm not stealing no. from anybody. No. no. Just as long no. as it's not but the government. the state encouraging it right. and, and misleading people as to how likely they are to win well that's that's a very libertarian point of view i think well you know government itself is a sin in some ways so it kind of makes sense but uh, it's also a very regressive tax all of these taxes cigarette taxes alcohol taxes and sport and betting taxes uh yeah. in the form of, of gambling harm the poor more than the rich the, because the rich are well are, in, are educated enough to know what a bad bet buying a lottery ticket is or and and they tend not to smoke or drink as much actually i'd be i'd be more okay with it if i could count on the fact that if somebody gambles their whole life and ends up with no money when they're 65, sorry, you're just out of luck. But that's not the way it works. They're going to get right. some of my money to be able to live, you know, a dignity in their old age, as Barack Obama once put it. Um, if, if that's the case, then I do have a stake in whether or not they gamble away their money. Yeah. Which and, is where, know, that's why socialism is so complicated. On- Daniel Ockren in his book on Prohibition points out that one of the reasons why the DuPont family worked so hard to get the Prohibition Amendment repealed was because they thought that that was the first step in getting rid of the income tax. Well, instead, what you ended up with was both. You got government taxes on alcohol and income taxes. Is there any resetting this trend toward gigantic government, high taxes, Many, many regulations. And and look, I realize, yeah, occasionally you get a Reagan or a Trump rolling back some regulations here and there. But, um, you know, th- that's just nipping around the edges. That's just tiny little baubles downward and a trend upward. What will it take to reset? Giant war, cataclysm, flu that kills 270 million? You know, I somebody, I, was it George Will? It was some prominent commentator just recently said that he thought that nothing short of a catastrophic war, no, maybe it was Charles Murray, nothing short of a catastrophic war. Well, I've been war. saying that for a decade. Yeah, that's you been, didn't yeah. pay attention to one of those bastards? That's been it? one of the Armstrong and Getty principles forever. We need yeah. a war or a fatal disease to come along. Damn, I yeah, can't get credit well, for anything. I'm reminded of that at the Simpsons episode when Bart looks at the uh, at the Generation X or, or Millennial or whoever it was, and he, and he says, we need another Vietnam. Thin out their ranks a little. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but, Bart. No, I... I mean, it's true that crises tend to motivate people, and there will inevitably be a crisis uh, if we continue down the road of ever-expanding government and, and irresponsibility. But uh, nothing, there, absolutely none of this is written in the book of fate. There's no reason in the world why we couldn't Give tomorrow. me an example, and I ask people all the time, give me an example of a society that went back from this, that went backwards to, to more you know, lean, responsible. I don't know of one. You mean without uh, without a cataclysm, you mean, or just d- disappearing? Yeah, yeah. Well, I just don't think it mind. happens. Yeah, exactly. That's what yeah. I, I've asked historians. Right. It just doesn't happen. I wish it would, but I don't think it's well, going to happen. Well, I've got an example: uh, Hong Kong. Okay. When when the British, um, you know, they they had Hong Kong for quite a long time, and it was not the economic powerhouse that it became until sometime in the mid 20th century, when they decided to to do it as an experiment and create as close to a laissez-faire society as they could. 
And between the 1950 and 2000, you know, Hong Kong became this incredible economic powerhouse because of sharply limited government. Now, the the price for that, the downside to that was a good degree of authoritarianism because it was imposed and the people there really didn't have a lot of democratic control over how that worked. But it was it was done and it was done from the top down as an ideological thing. We are going to create the, a, a free market society. And that's okay. well, you did. need a wise and benevolent king then, because the people are never exactly. going to vote for that. You know, right. which which could bring us to, uh, you know, when uh, democracy comes to the Middle East, they vote for a theocracy. Um but I was going to say, well, just, or Japan. That's another. You know, your Middle East example gives me a, a, a good example, and that is MacArthur occupying Japan. Japan in the 1930s and 40s was every bit the, the terrorist uh, theocratic society that the Middle East is today. And after the, catas- the catastrophe of the war, right. MacArthur takes over and he says, "We're going to write you a constitution, and it's going to have things like freedom of speech and so forth in there." And look at what has resulted. What has resulted has been prosperity and modernization of Japan. And weird porn. That could not have been and weird, weird porn. Good point. <laughs> it, it, it takes a catastrophe as your it takes a village, I guess. But I, I, I agree. And it is absolutely necessary to point out we are writing our own catastrophe. It stands at $22 trillion of uh, debt and, and growing every day. What's that saying that the hard times that, that you've been... That, Repeating over and over. That's a good one. Gosh, hard times make for strong people. Strong people make for good times. Good times make for soft people. Soft people make for bad times. Yeah. Make bad times. And that's what we're going through. Yeah, probably so. And and it's hard because the generation that went through World War II and experienced not just World War II, but the, but the, the prosperity of the 50s that came when Truman and Eisenhower eliminated the government controls that had been imposed during World War II, that generation is disappearing. And the, the, what we're seeing is the rise of, heck, we're ri- seeing the rise of a generation that doesn't, doesn't remember the Cold War at all. And that's a, a scary thing. And what's interesting, Lincoln actually gave a speech on this topic, his first prominent Address in the, the Cold War. That was prescient. But where go on. He, <laughs> where he said, you know, all of the revolutionary leaders, they're dying off, and and they are no longer around to remind us of the tyranny that they experienced and and of the importance of freedom. And if we don't remember those lessons, we're destined for a real disaster. And obviously, he was right about that. Well, does and it? I think we're seeing the same thing. Well, does it concern you? There's been a number of polls lately uh, and articles and all kinds of different things showing a uh, a much brighter view of socialism by young yeah. people. Hillary Clinton said uh, not long ago, she said coming out as a capitalist really hurt her in Iowa. I mean, that's that that would have been crazy a couple of decades ago. Yeah, no, it's a, that's a very frightening thing. I mean, I yeah, nothing chills me more than seeing these things about the 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 positive view that young people have of socialism, the the deadliest and cruelest of all human ideologies. Yeah, but you get stuff for free, you see. Yeah, everybody gets a free education, and they don't have to worry about working, and they can be a poet if they want. Um, yeah, it's uh, it it is scary, Tim. Although the one, and it's an odd reassurance to find, but the one reassuring thing I've found is that. Those same polls, when they ask them, all right, what is socialism? The kids don't have a, a clue what it is. It just sounds vaguely pleasant to them that they will get a free college education. And, you know, honestly, as you said at the very beginning, these are the people who are going to be voting. So, yeah. <laughs> Boy, oh God, there's so many things we could talk about. We could talk about the unholy state of higher education right now. The idea yeah. of coming out of school with, you know, $150,000 worth of debt for your undergrad degree and, and you know, how that's changed so much in a few uh you know, a few generations, I kind of sympathize with the kids thinking there's got to be a better alternative than this. But yeah, I hope it ain't so. socialism. I think what happened is the biggest thing I think is the conservatives, the, really the blame I think belongs primarily with the conservatives. The conservatives claimed to be the voice of freedom, of the Constitution, of limited government and free markets. And the conservatives have never really understood free markets and never actually supported free markets. And they then tied themselves to social conservative attitudes, such as hostility to same-sex marriage, that made them 
no longer a tenable position for the younger generation. Mm. And so the younger generation has thrown out the conservatives, and that, uh, and by doing that, they've also thrown out the good sides of conservatism, which were the, the few aspects of limited government and free markets that some conservatives sometimes understood. Boy, that's and some so good that, stuff. That's, that's, that's really good right there, because we, we've been on stages before, and you know, you can talk about uh, small government and all that sort of stuff and fiscal responsibility. And But if, if people think you're, most of this has changed now, but if people thought you were anti-gay marriage or, you know, anti-legalizing marijuana or whatever, that the conversation stopped there. You weren't yeah. going to get anywhere with your small government claptrap. And to some degree, that's a good thing from a libertarian point of view. That's because that shows that the audience was attuned to the hypocrisy mm. of those who claimed to be in favor of private property rights and free markets, but at the same time thought that the state should tell people whom they could marry. And it, that's a, a positive development. The downside is that the left is going to take advantage of that, and they're going to wed socialism to their own views. And I, one hopes that the younger generation will also see the hypocrisy of that, to see that the left is wrong when it says, yes, you can choose whom to go to bed with, but we're going to tell you what property you can own and what businesses you can run. If, if we can maintain the skepticism against both sides, then there's a hope for a future where our politics believe in freedom across the board. Well, let's not gloss over the downside of socialism and central planning. For, you know, for those who haven't been obsessed with it for most of their adult lives, uh, why not socialism, Tim? It sounds great, equal, fair, etc. I, you really do want a long-form podcast, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> the central evil of socialism is in the idea that you exist to serve others. That moral good consists of you working to support other people and other people working to support you, when the reality is that I do not exist to make other people happy. I exist for my own sake, and I have a right to pursue my own happiness, not having to, to curtail my behavior to satisfy the desires of other people. Every other evil that arises from socialism, from the shortages that are inevitable in it to the political and social oppression that result from it, flow from that central evil premise. I'm not nearly as good at quoting folks as you are. It's it's a gift. It's it always amazed me. But uh, I just make them up. Uh, <laughs> That's, and who's going to challenge you? Perfect. Yeah. Uh, but I absolutely love what I've heard expressed in a couple of places lately that the amount of control or oppression it takes to make socialism work it would be repugnant to any human being who who either remembers what it looks like or can imagine it. You either, I mean, the only two reason people, reasons people work are for reward or to avoid punishment. And there must be so much punishment to make socialism work, it ends the way it always ends. That's right. And the reason why is because a, a, a thriving economy is a living thing. A thriving economy is kind of like... Um, it's kind of like the environment. It's like an ecosystem, which means it's constantly in a process of change. It's not a static, fixed state. And socialism views it as a static, fixed state or, or, or like some sort of a machine instead of a living organism. And so it tries to prescribe rules that will be enforced by the government to say what you shall charge or how much you will produce and so forth. And because that can't work, what you really do is you end up you get you end up moving the competition to some other aspect of the economy, and then that has to be clamped down, and then it moves it to elsewhere, and then that has to be clamped down until the entire society is clamped down. So, for example, if you impose a price restriction on milk, and you say, no, no, we're all, the only commodity that we're going to impose a price restriction is on milk. Nothing else. You can charge whatever you want for everything else, just not milk. Milk has to be, what, 25 cents a gallon. Well, if, that, if you do that, the dairies aren't going to produce milk. They're going to put that. They're going to put their products into making cheese or butter instead because they can make more money. So if you're going to enforce your milk restriction, now you have to restrict the production of cheese and butter also. And now the dairies are going to start making ice cream instead. So now you've got to restrict the production of ice cream, and then you're going to have to restrict the the cows, and you're going to have to restrict the farmers. You're going to have to restrict the feed that goes to feed the cows, and then you're going to have to restrict the transportation, the trucks that carry the cows from one place to another, and then you have to restrict the fuel that the trucks use, and pretty soon you have to restrict the entire economy just in order to maintain your price restriction on milk. It can't inevitably we, works that way. Can't we just put the dairy farmers in a re-education camp and beat them till they comply? <laughs> you, that's, 
that's what ends up happening exactly because you they, they don't work for profit so they so the only thing they can do is to work out of fear and so you have to impose more and more fear in order to get people to work now the answer that socialists always give is oh no new socialist man won't be selfish and greedy he's going to care for his fellow man the way he cares for himself now we know that that's nonsense that that is ne- has never been the case and will never be the case but and the only way to accomplish that is through forcible re-education. And so you create these labor camps in order to teach them to sacrifice themselves for the benefit of the hive because we're running people as if they were ants. And so it ends, and of course, if, who's going to do that? There has to be somebody who's in charge of the hive. And so inevitably you have a dictator class that it, it gets fat and, and the, and while the people are starving. Yeah. It's like, it reminded me of that, the Lenin letter that came to light a couple of years back, uh, the, the letter actually exists uh, um, where he says better to hang a thousand farmers than to have, you know, the overall good not succeed or something. Yeah. Right. Just, I mean, just amazing that anybody could actually think that way. They were going to village to village hanging farmers to show you this is why you need to comply. And he thought, well, you know, you hang a thousand farmers, but overall people yeah. are going to be happier. Like, That's a hell of a mindset. It's like the old, uh, like the old trick of, of getting the donkey to move forward by holding the carrot in front of him. Or you can whip him with a stick from behind. And so the, you have the old carrot or the stick approach. The socialists say that the carrot is oppressive, so they eliminate it. So then they're left with making bigger and bigger and bigger sticks. Wow. Wow. That is well said. So uh, having solved socialism for the next few generations, I want to talk a little bit about your book, The Permission Society, which is, is terrific. And, and we, is that the one we partially inspired? Yes, that okay. was because uh, you you are very fond of saying that whenever the government talks about permits, you need to remember that the root word of permit is permission. Right. And I, I had that and, and never use it as a noun without using it as a verb. The government is exactly. going to permit me to repave my patio. How kind of them. That's right. And I, I was having I, I was thinking of that when I was com- having a conversation with a friend of mine who does Second Amendment law, and he was trying to argue in some cases that the same rules that apply when the government requires you to get a permit for a parade or a protest ought to also apply when the government requires you to get a permit for a gun. And that is that they're, they're presu- it's very rare that the government is allowed to impose restrictions on you for free speech. And so it should be the same thing for gun permits. And I thought, well, you can apply that logic across the board to all the different things government requires us to get permission to do. And when you start to think about all the things government requires you to get permission for, it's amazing. I mean, everything from from uh, the, a permit to build a, a house or run a business to a, a prescription to, to have a medicine. A, a prescription is just a government permission slip allowing you to own a medicine. Right, right. And, and I actually just watched a speech you did at the Cato Institute about your book uh, a few years ago. And you led off with a great uh, quote, was it from Madison, about how the, uh, the American, uh, the Constitution and the, the Revolution flopped the idea of... Um, of rights and permission on its head? Yeah, so Madison wrote this uh, in 1792. It's an essay called Charters, and he says that uh, in, in Europe, charters of liberty were granted by power, but America has set the example of charters of power granted by liberty. And what he meant was that in, in, a, in Europe, you had things like the Magna Carta. And if you actually read the Magna Carta, what it says is, I, the king, am giving the following freedoms to the people. Well, where did he get those freedoms to begin with, right? Did he just invent them? Did he just grow them in his backyard? What the American Constitution says is, no, no, the people are free to begin with, and they give the government power. And Madison says in that essay that that change from the idea that government gives us freedom to the idea that we give the government power because we are already free, that change is the most important change that the American Revolution accomplished. You know, if we could go uh, crisper... You know, gene, uh, gene stitching, whatever they call it. Gene editing. Gene editing, yeah, with one briefly stated idea and infect like the next four generations with that. I think it would be what you just said, when, what Madison just said. The idea that, that all right, all right, okay, I guess we need a government, but we're going to tell you what you can do, and you're going to do no more than that. Yep, that's right. And actually, I there's a book that I, I really recommend called The Discovery of Freedom by Rose Wilder Lane, where this is the basic thesis. Now, the book's got some some problems. Some of its historical claims aren't accurate, but the essence of it is exactly right. Nah, don't that nitpick. Is, 
<laughs> You're right. <laughs> that is the key, that the idea that human beings are fundamentally free, that freedom isn't given to us by anything. Once you have that idea in your mind, if you apply it consistently across the board, it's really amazing what a different world you would have, a, a world where where you can accomplish, your, you can pursue your own happiness without having to ask the government, mother, may I first? Are yeah. you, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, I was thinking we ought to ask before before we wrap this up, what does it even mean to say you're a libertarian at this point in our nation's history? Because there's so many different definitions. It means is you're it, a big Gary Johnson fan. Oh, Lord. Is it just um, <laughs> escaped mental patient Gary Johnson, as we often call him on the radio show? Uh, <laughs> does it just mean that you embrace the idea that that the people should establish a limited government and keep it limited? The The... The simple answer to what a libertarian is is a person who believes that government has no right to dictate my economic choices, just like it has no right to dictate my personal choices about whom I date or whom I uh, uh, read or whom I speak to. It also should have no authority to tell me what I do with my property or whether I run a business or or any of those sorts of things. Government is is strictly limited to defending individual rights and nothing more. That's the simple answer. The, the more complicated answer is that libertarianism is a species of liberalism. It's, and a lot of people get this confused because they think that libertarians are kind of conservative, and actually we're the opposite of that. Conservatives, the primary concern for a conservative is creating and maintaining a society. Libertarians aren't concerned with creating and maintaining a society. They're concerned with individual flourishing. They want the individual to be free to pursue happiness. I'm not sure I've ever flourished in my life, but it's a good goal. <laughs> well, then you need to get out more, my friend. <laughs> um, and, and liberals, today's modern liberals, they, they also want the individual to, to flourish, but they think the way to accomplish that is for government to take money from people who earn it and give it to them, or to give them an education, or give them housing and everything. Or so impose so many rules that flourishing is assured. To protect them and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Whereas the libertarian says, no, no, you have the right to God and lead your own life, but don't expect me to come paying your bills for you. Where, and so those are two branches of the same tree. Conservatism is uh, the idea that our primary concern is creating and maintaining society, and that means curtailing individual rights sometimes in order to maintain a healthy society. It's just by historical accident that libertarians and conservatives joined forces during the Cold War because they were both anti-communist, and what we're seeing in today's world is the breakup of that of that connection. We're seeing libertarians no longer joining forces with conservatives, which incidentally is why you see the Trump phenomenon, because the libertarian wing of the, cons of, of the Republican Party, they weren't interested in participating in that kind of, of a choice. And some of them voted for Hillary, even some of them, many of them voted for Gary Johnson, some of them voted for Trump. So, and so it fractured the Republican vote, which is why you saw that phenomenon occur. So what do you do about um, people that make bad decisions in, in life? If you're going to look at it from a libertarian standpoint and you believe in free markets and try to stay away from socialism, because we talk about this a lot. Um, the person that's made bad choices throughout their life and they end up with no money, the person that does the dumb things and ends up in the hospital but doesn't have insurance when they could have had it. How do you handle that? Well, I have a couple friends who often say stupid should hurt. Right. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, uh, and, and, there's a, so and the good thing about that, of course, is... If you if you witness in your life as you're growing up people who've had some really bad results from their actions, you might be careful more careful with your own actions. Yeah, that's not right. theoretical. No, that I right. saw things no, no, scared no. the hell out of oh, me. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, so are you going to end up in your in your cold-hearted libertarian world, Tim Sandifer? Are you going to have homeless people uh, starving or people going to the hospital and they can't get their broken ankle fixed or what? I suppose that might happen. I, I don't think that it's going to be nearly as common as the nightmares that the left likes to throw out and say, oh, everybody's going to be starving in the streets. I, I always thought it was funny when people say, uh, uh, oh, yeah, f what, free to do what? Free to starve as if you won't starve if your hands are tied. Right? The free person has, has less chance to starve to death <laughs> than the person who's, who's, who's being dictated to by the state. Um, no, in a, a free society, if you want to help people who are unfortunate, you will not be stopped. Well, yeah, exactly right. And I think, you know, private charity will become a much more significant part of every community 
Um, you know, when government but the, charity. But, but Joe, the thing is, it's not I, it's not about that. To me, the, the thing about private charity, it's you're absolutely right. Private charity, not only as a theoretical matter, would it occur, but historically, we know that's the case, because the most charitable time in American history was the late 19th century, which was also the freest, uh, economically speaking, as everything from the, the Red Cross to the EASPCA dates from the time where we got closest to laissez-faire. So absolutely, that will happen. But the most important point here is that the what about the poor argument. He's always whipped out in an effort to get you to say that you exist to make other people happy, that your life is deter- the, the goodness of you as a person is dependent upon the degree to which you serve poor and unfortunate people. And that is something I absolutely refuse to accept. I exist to provide for myself to pursue my own happiness and to accomplish my own goals. If I happen to be charitable to other people, which I do, then that is because I derive personal benefit from that because I think that person deserves some help because it makes me feel better as a person to help that person or or because I just am not willing to live with myself while watching this person suffer. Well, and your your motivation doesn't really matter to me if you're free to do whatever the hell you want, including giving all your money to the poor. It's your business. Right. Uh, I had one more topic I wanted to get on to. Oh, I've got a big one, but I'm saving it for the end. Un- unless we come up with more topics to get on to. <laughs> oh, oh, God, it flitted right well, out of my mind. I am a lawyer. I, oh. I am capable of talking in oh, hour-long chunks. Right. So. Yeah. God bless you. It finally it popped back into my mind. Um, What do you make of the culture of... Uh, ready offense, the culture of the microaggression, the culture of um, uh, celebrating victimhood. I, I think it's a horrifying development, and it has to be ended now. It, it should have been ended yesterday. It's a terrible thing to see. And I, I think we see it particularly in w- – there's three aspects to it. There's the idea of appropriation the idea of social constructivism, which is the idea that everything, all the differences between people are really just the result of social construction that, that society can change. And there's the idea that, uh, of racial identity constituting your, your mind, at, that you are only who you are at, because of your race. And, therefore, and that's what leads to the idea of privilege, yeah. that, that any advantage you have is just because of privilege, disregarding that perhaps you or your or your ancestors made wise, wise choices and governed their resources prudently. We disregard all of that and say the only reason you are in the, your status is because of privilege, and therefore the only reason other people are in a lower status is because they lack privilege. Those three things, appropriation, appropriation is a horrible idea that, that people shouldn't learn from each other or adopt each other's cultural practices because they somehow belong to some racial group. The appropriation, social constructivism, and privilege are the three things that lead to the, the, the culture of grievance that at its worst, most, most intense state you see in the Middle East today. God, if you'd explained some of those concepts to me 20 years ago and told me they were going to catch on, I'd have thought, that's not possible. No, that's oh, limited. Here. Same here. Well, Absolutely. and listen, I would never have thought it. references to the Nazis are so tired. But as I've said many times, I am unfamiliar with any society that was so enthusiastic about pinning labels on people, perhaps on their jumpsuits, since Nazi Germany. It's astonishing to me to see the United States of America in a position where everybody must know, you know, what you are before they can even listen to your opinion. There are two aspects of today's social grievance culture that are very similar to Nazism or to proto-Nazism. One of them is the idea of, of group grievance. People forget that the Germans saw themselves as victims of the Jews. They thought they were being victimized and oppressed and kept down by Jewish privilege, and they thought of themselves as reacting against the aggressions of the Jews. 
we, we forget that fact. The second thing is the, this idea that um, uh, cultural items belong to different groups, what, what I said about appropriation. They came up with, for example, Deutschphysik versus Judenphysik. Judenphysik was Jewish physics, like Albert Einstein, the physics of Jewish scientists. And that was wow. different from good German physics, Deutschphysik, which was culturally belonging to the Jews. And that is exactly what we're seeing in social studies departments and even in some science departments and universities today that are saying that certain kinds of thinking, certain ways of thinking belong to certain ethnic categories and you shouldn't cross those categories. That's a terribly dangerous development. Wow, that is a shocking parallel because I've heard of that. The rejection of traditional mathematics as being you know, paternalistic and white and Western and that sort of thing, which is just a horrifying notion because it always leads to the same place. You see this in particularly in the work of Ta-Nehisi Coates, who writes oh, for the Atlantic. Please. Now, yeah. I could spend a good two hours talking about how much I despise Coates's work. What a Pulitzer Prize! And he's won the National Book Award. He won a Genius Grant. He is not a fringe figure. He got a Genius Grant. I didn't realize. Yeah, he's brilliant and completely deluded in my mind. But go on. Ta-Nehisi Coates is a white supremacist who happens to be black. He believes that the United States is a society based on racial class that exists for the purpose of oppressing black people and that white people have no place in it. I mean, the black people have no place in it, and that they. Sh- and he, his entire book, Between the World and Me, the thesis of that book is that black people should abandon the American dream. In fact, should abandon dreaming altogether, because the American dream is a myth concocted by white people to oppress black people. It's a disgrace. At, at, and when he gets to the end of the book and applauds the September 11th hijackers, you see the degree to which that nihilism leads to a system that 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 degrades and denigrates black American citizens. And it's, it's really offensive to me as an American to see anyone counsel black Americans to abandon the American dream that, that black Americans have suffered so much for. I mean, when you, when you hear the term American dream today, very few people think of James Truslow Adams, the writer who invented that phrase in 1930. Almost everyone thinks of Martin Luther King, who articulated the American dream better than most white Americans are capable of doing, because he was laying claim to that dream as a fellow American. And Ta-Nehisi Coates says no. His writing is organized around the principle that that is white privilege, and that America is a white supremacist nation in which black people have no place. I don't know how the Ku Klux Klan should not applaud every word that is uttered by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And that's the culture that you lead to out of this social grievance notion. Well, that should put this podcast on the map. That little screed right there. Well, yeah. Attention. Yeah, I tell you what, let's get together again and go further down that line because I think it's an important one. So I got uh, after I read his book, I got so incensed, I started writing a response to it, which is now 90 pages long, and I have no idea what to do with it. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, Give it to me. I'll set it to music. We'll make it a rock <laughs> opera. Oh, you'll do like a Hamilton sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> awesome. Come up with some dances. Timothy, um, send a fur. Send a fur. <laughs> You can't, you just See, can't, the ideas are rolling out already. You can't just use the same melody. Oh, you gotta, <laughs> so I got a question for you, and if you don't want to answer it, you, you can, or we could even edit it out of the podcast. But um, I, I've wondered about this for a while from a libertarian survival of the Western civilization sort of thing, uh, with demographics being so important. Well, first of all, are you mostly an optimist or mostly a pessimist on the future, do you think, for uh, for I'm the an, good of the world? I'm an optimist in the long run and a pessimist in the short run. I think okay. it's going to get worse before it gets better, and then I think it's going to get a lot better. One of the reasons I think it's going to get worse and stay bad, we're headed toward another dark age, is, is, is the idea that, um, well, it's not an idea, it's just a fact. Developed, affluent countries stop having kids. They just do, for some reason. And it's happening all across Western society. You as a committed... Well, and, and developed Eastern society. And I would never tell anybody who doesn't have kids that they ought to have kids or that it's a good idea. Trust me. You don't want to have kids unless you really, really want to have kids. Because it is your... You mean, it's just, you know, I'm glad I have kids, but it is not something you get into lightly. You know, I think I'll get a parakeet. It's not like that. <laughs> but you're committed to not having kids. What do we do? What does society do to try to get... People for, that believe in capitalism and freedom and education to start having more kids. Because currently in America, we're below the 2.1 live births per couple 
to, to keep society going. And they're doing it all over Europe. The, a lot of your European countries have started these government programs to convince people to have kids. It's not working, and it shouldn't work. No. But, but what, what do you do about that? Well, I'll begin that with, uh, you know, you like my quoting so much. I've got a quote from you for you from uh, Francis Bacon, who, who writes, He that has a wife and children has given hostages to fortune, for they are impediments to great enterprises, either of virtue or mischief. Wow. Certainly the best works and of the greatest merit for the public have proceeded from the unmarried or childless men who, both in affection and means, have married and endowed the public. So you see, I've, I'm married and, I've married and endowed the public. Well, I, yeah, well, you, congratulations. And, and the only have. bacon I'm interested in is sizzling in a pan, you childless and, bastards. And, and, you, and you have, and, and that's fine. But in general, it's just a yeah. fact that that uh, capitalist democracies are being replaced by people coming in from other countries that don't believe in that sort of thing. And they're they're just not having children. I don't know. Since, you know, I'm I'm reminded of of another quote from uh, Walter Williams who says, uh, what do I care for future generations? What have they ever done for me? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. I'm I'm not going to be around to to worry about that, so I'm fine with that. I I just think that my resources are best put in this direction rather than another direction. Other people have other choices, and that's fine. And my children are are the ideas, and I hope that other people's biological children will uh, take up those ideas and make the world a better place. It's always there for them to do it. And and if they're not going to do it, then it doesn't matter you know, one way or the other, whether whether there are more of this, these kids or more of those kids. Well, to paraphrase the great English philosopher uh, Graham Nash, uh, who's, uh, you know, if you're not having children, don't teach your children well. Teach your immigrants well. Teach your, you know, third worlders, your, your Africans, your Central Americans, your Mexican folks, whatever. You, we need to aggressively and enthusiastically uh, express the things that we've been chatting about. Do you today. think that's what's happening in Britain and France and uh, Belgium? No, I think they're they're they've they've fallen into the cult of self-loathing and multiculturalism to the point that they're afraid to defend that which is clearly not only good but great about Western and, civilization, which is a bizarre sort of uh, neurosis to me. But there's a root. There's a there's a basis for optimism in that, and that is that the the immigrants who are fleeing those oppressive societies, they already understand freedom a heck of a lot better than a good deal of natural born Americans. Oh, no doubt about that. And the the societies that that have this self loathing and xenophilia, as you like to put it, those societies they're the ones they're the the, the wealthy upper class folks who aren't having kids, so they won't pass on those the, that mental infection to the next generation. So, <laughs> you know, there's. I think it's impossible to predict. This is one of those things that falls into the realm of, uh, you know, the butterfly flaps its wings in Central Park and and you have a hurricane next year. It's impossible to predict what's going to result from these connections of people from different civilizations and cultures. And I, I honestly don't know. And I don't think that it's necessarily the case that a free society will go to being an unfree society for those demographic reasons. Well, and uh, I hope you're right. Yeah, and uh, you know, probably a week after recording this podcast, there will be a nuclear holocaust or some sort of you know microbe that wipes out three quarters of the planet, and this discussion will be uh, rendered well, ridiculous. Gosh, I hope you're wrong. Well, <laughs> because as Tim points out, you just never know which way these things are going to go. But I'm still enthused about trying to teach folks what uh, what counts and what yields a happy society and that is ironically uh, you know stimulating happy individuals and on but, that you know that's that puts us in a in a good point to, though and that is that that one of the things that we advocates of freedom find to be a handicap when we talk to the public is that we can't point to any specific outcome of freedom we can't say freedom will lead you to x mm. all we can say is that freedom gives you the ability to make a future a better future if you choose to put yourself to it and so the, whereas the welfare statist or the communist or the socialist, he'll say, my, if you'd go my way, we will lead to X. And it 
it's always a lie, but he can always point to something, even if it is just a lie, whereas we don't lie like that. And so we can't say, no, freedom's not going to solve your problems for you. It's not going to necessarily feed the, the hungry and clothe the naked, although freedom tends to do that better than any other society. But we can't tell you for certain what the result of freedom is going to be. Instead, it's the open-ended opportunity. It's the ability to build your own life, which a lot of people have a hard time picturing in their minds, and so they go for the lie instead. They go yeah. for X that's offered to them because it looks real, and yet it turns out to be a lie. It's interesting that that idea of you can be what you want to be you know, with your, your efforts and talents is, is, is so exciting for some people and so frightening for others, depending yeah. on who you are or how you're built or what you've learned, I guess. Mm. Yeah, well, it's frightening for me too. It's oh, frightening yeah. for, oh, yeah. for anybody who thinks about it at all. It, it really is, and it and it ought to be. That's what stimulates you to make the right decisions as best you can, and and to avoid the wrong decisions. It's when making wrong decisions is no longer a fearful prospect. Then you really should be afraid because then you're going to make wrong decisions more. So yeah, it's a fearful prospect, the idea of a free society. But we know from the the blasted civilizations of the past of the of the desolate killing fields of the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany and the horrible stillness of oppression in Iran and China we know what the lack of freedom leads to so we I have, should avoid that freedom's thing. scary a couple of bad sports bets and i could be eating dog food as an old person there's no doubt about it yeah you get used right. to it timothy <laughs> timothy sandoval my decision Tim Sandifer, Vice President for Litigation at the Goldwater Institute. Tim, uh, big fun. Great to talk to you. Let's do it again. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks, guys. Ever tell you about the time I ate kibbles and bits at a party? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Made people laugh. Yes, you have. Yeah. Anything for the bit. Anything for the bit. Anyway. Did I did I ever tell you about the time I ate SpaghettiOs? I, 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 would, I thought to myself, That's you know... That's not crazy to eat SpaghettiOs. When I was a kid, I loved SpaghettiOs, oh, yeah. I, and I was at the grocery store, so I bought a can of it, and I, and I, and I took it home, and... It, Oh God, that stuff is disgusting! Oh, it's horrifying. Oh, it is. It, you can't choke it down as no. an adult. Yeah, yeah, it's terrible. And so, and so that that's the SpaghettiOs phenomenon. So that now, when I watch shows from the '80s, like I watched Knight Rider, and and I I loved this show as a kid, and I tried to watch it. I've had that happen. I, I've had oh, that happen. Yeah, you watch it and think this is embarrassing. Phenomenon. Yeah. Well, if you had kids, don't feed them SpaghettiOs then. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Talk to you later.